1: Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, been way too long since we've had her on. She's super sharp. She is the assistant professor of economics up at Seton Hall. That's a big East school, which we miss greatly because I don't like the Big 12s, a West Virginia guy. But we are thrilled to talk again to Danielle Zanzalari. How are you, ma'am? Great to see you again.
0: I'm good. How are you doing?
1: Fantastic. Can't complain one little bit. Who's got it better than us? We can sit around and talk about stuff. That's not too bad a gig, huh? I agree. You've got a piece out in uh, real clear markets. I love the angle on this. Let's start big picture with the buzzwords. Cause I love to attack buzzwords because people just buzzword everything anymore. We, we get inundated, especially in election season. We just all saw commercials about this for the election, main street versus wall street, right? Like there's all the people on the stock market and then there's all the right. Ra- the problem with it is that ain't true because consistently from 1991 to 2021, the last data we got, it bounces around a little bit, but between 55 and 60% of Americans have some kind of stock or some kind of something. And then if you want to include passive stock like IRAs and 401ks, that number goes up even higher. That trope just doesn't hold true, does it? That it's stock market versus you know, regular people on Main Street versus Wall Street. It's a lot more complicated than that, isn't it?
0: I agree. It's much more complicated than the uh, Main Street, Wall Street. It also tries to have this dichotomy that you're either or. And you can't be both.
1: And you talk about that a little bit, but let's get an elephant out of the room right now. People think of that don't invest, and even some people that do invest, the smart investors anyway, they think of the stock market as being risky or a risk or dangerous. And we're now living in the paradigm of, we just had things like the FTX debacle where the new Bitcoin stuff collapsed very spectacularly. And it's going to be a messy story for a long time. The truth of the matter is, other than three or four times in the last hundred years, which granted it was really bad, stock market is pretty stable stuff.
0: Yes. Uh, Investing is kind of the, the ticket to retirement. It's hard to put money under your uh, mattress or in a bank earning very little interest and, and hope to retire, with. especially with the way inflation has been going. Uh, invest uh, If you invest in S&P 500 from 1970 to 2020, the average return was about 10% a year. So if you do nothing over a long period of time, you can end up doing quite well in the stock market.
1: Yeah. Danielle Zanzelari joining us, economist explaining this stuff so well, even I can understand it. So that begs the question and kind of the core of where your piece is going to go here though, is even though anybody can buy a stock theoretically, there's still some gatekeeping involved here. There's some regulatory things to hear. It's not just money. Somebody that has 10 or $20 in their pocket, just going and buying a stock. And that's kind of where you start with this piece and your take of, hey, if this is the path to financial freedom, financial independence, especially retirement type stuff, we want as many people as possible doing this, but the system isn't really set up to help that, is it?
0: Correct. So as of right now, there's a definition called accredited investor. And so the SEC makes a rule that says, unless you make more than $200,000 a year, or $300,000 a year with a spouse, or have a net worth over a million dollars, or have a specialty financial trading um, kind of certificate, Series 7, 65, or 82, unless you have those things, you can't invest in a lot, of, uh, a, a lot of deals. So for example, if you want to be a partial owner of a very big apartment complex, well, unless you are an accredited investor, you can't do that. So unless you have $100 million and you can do this on your own, likely you're going to have to kind of be partaking in a small investment with a number of other investors. But actually, the SEC says you can't do that unless you are wealthy. Uh, and, And the reason that they say, and this is their actual wording, it is they want to ensure that all participating investors are financially sophisticated and able to fend for themselves or sustain the risk of loss.
1: Well, I mean, that sounds great on paper, but the problem with it is, is the things you just laid out, you know, 200,000 a year or 300,000 with a spouse got to be under network 1 million. That's 90% of Americans. So you're, you know, you talk about the 1% or the 10% wealthiest. This is literally the 10% wealthiest now, if you have this standard.
0: Yeah. And and the thing that the SEC is saying, saying they want to prevent is people from losing their money. They, they want you to be financially sophisticated to invest in this. But their definition actually has nothing to do with understanding finance. They're basically saying the wealthy is financially sophisticated and the middle class and lower class are financially stupid. And we know that's not all the case. Right. You could be a 21 year old college kid with an excellent like software engineering background in tech and maybe you make two hundred thousand dollars or more your first year. Does that person have a much more financially sophisticated background? The SEC under this rule would say yes, even though maybe someone who's like 45 have been budgeting and investing for 20 plus years and and able to to live and invest not financially sophisticated because their income's not over $200,000. So their definition here uh is pretty gatekeeping as you said earlier and it, you know, it's not really getting at the root of the problem. If they're really trying to be benevolent and, and care about investors and, and want them to actually be financially educated, then that's what they should be doing. Financially educating them, not prohibiting them from experiencing things because they're not wealthy.
1: Right. Danielle Zanzalari joining us. This is, regulation d thing though because this gets into some nomenclature so we don't lose anybody so let's do the nomenclature real quick this regulation d affects how banks and credit unions classify the accounts the problem here is this is actually a very old regulation it is periodically updated it had a major revision in 2013. recently the federal reserve board did kind of tweak this a little bit because they acknowledged look covid COVID 19 we need to look at this again what is it about this Regulation D? I know we talked about kind of the gatekeeping aspect of it. What is it and why does it need to be tweaked so much, do you think?
0: Well, there's kind of a lot of subsets under Regulation D. So um, it's it's probably too much to actually talk about just all at once. But there's a lot of rules kind of protecting the consumer or, so to speak, protecting the consumer under Regulation D, uh, what banks are and are not allowed to do. And so um, this tends to be a big focal point. I mean, one of the main points of my particular article that you referenced is that um, one of the House Republicans, Patrick McHenry, who's on the House Financial Services Committee, he mentioned prior to the election that, you know, he wanted to expand that accredited investor definition to include include more people. So, you know, what I would like to see is, you know, let anybody invest. It's their money. Um, You know, we don't need the government to to tell people what they're allowed to do or allowed to risk for an investment, or at least I'd like to see a little bit more freedom in that, that aspect. But what they're proposing is that anyone who invests over 10% of their annual income or net assets, then they could be allowed to do these things. And just to give you like a sense of what some of these investments are, um, like I said, it's hotels, offices. For example, my husband and I are officially an accredited investor. So we went through a platform called CrowdStreet. It's a real estate crowdfunding platform and they offer deals from these mega real estate companies that are huge names. You might know of them. And we own a partial, a bit of a hotel, a little sliver of a hotel in Dallas. Now we are not wealthy enough to afford an entire hotel, but we can contribute some money towards this hotel and have a sliver of that. With the way the S&P 500 and the stock market in general is doing this year, It's not doing quite well, but real estate has been doing quite well. And this is a way for us to kind of help out our returns. But the problem is everyday people can't do this unless their income's over those thresholds or they have more assets or they have some sophisticated financial licensing. And so you're leaving out people who could maybe invest in this that that otherwise can't because of this definition. And for example, uh, my husband and I are considering a deal right now for an office in Miami. Now, again, we're very small time investors, but it, it allows us to get exposure to real estate that we might otherwise not get.
1: Danielle Zanzalari joining us. You mentioned it in your piece. I think the definitions have changed some too, and the regulations aren't keeping up, because like real estate syndicate, ooh, that sounds kind of scary. But if you and a couple neighbors want to go in on the junk house in the neighborhood and fix it up and flip it and turn it out, guess what? You're a syndicate now. That market has drastically changed the last 10. Look, HGTV's printing money off flipping houses right now. That has changed drastically. Startup companies is specifically mentioned in this regulation. How much has startup companies changed in the Internet era the last 10, 15, 20 years where you can literally start a company from your cell phone if you really want to get ambitious about it? How much of this is just kind of regulation creep and the technology and the environment and the culture has changed so much faster that this is not only, you know, not applicable, it's almost archaic?
0: It definitely is archaic because you know, you're not letting anybody get in on startup companies. That would be a violation unless you're an accredited investor. Even if you knew the person, really felt like that business was sound. Again, the SEC is saying you're not sophisticated enough to invest in this because your income's too low. And it does not matter if you really genuinely understand finances and you want to invest in this. You brought up the you brought up the FTX scandal kind of before. I'm calling it a scandal because it's it's fraud. Uh, it seems pretty clear to say It's fraud and not just mismanagement of investing. It's fraud. Um. You know, there's pretty limited rules to crypto. I'm not saying that they there needs to be a ton, but there's not many. And um, and I think that's because it's new and the government tends to run slow. I do think that there'll be an onslaught of, of regulation now. But the the important thing is there's always rules to protect investors. You can't fraud investors, you can't lie about what you're doing with the money. You have to have sound investor reports and back that up. That's true with real estate deals, that's true with um you know, a CPG company that's on the stock market. It's true with even crypto. You cannot fraud investors. Those rules already exist, even for the most infinite industries like crypto. So, you know, you don't necessarily need to prevent people from themselves and their investing. Uh, You have kids now losing money in crypto. That's not prevented, but you're preventing them from losing possibly money on likely more sound real estate deals or startup deals than in uh, some other industries.
1: Yeah, Danielle Zanzalari joining us. It's almost a, a you know written in stone politically, especially in on the right and folks that are on the right in the media about you know picking and choosing winners and losers, and that's become part of the parlance in economics, especially conservative economics, supply side economics, whatever you want to call it. The problem here is, like you said, the SEC wealthy equals financially sophisticated, and if you don't have a certain amount of wealth, then you're not smart enough to invest. That's quite to the point, picking and choosing winners and losers here. I get that there should be some governmental control of like, you know, if you want to set a percentage of income, if you're under a certain thing, okay, fine. 10% is the number you threw around on part of this. Fine. But at some point, where do we get to the point of, hey, the government does not need to be telling people whether or not they're financially uh, smart enough. And I understand, again, you want, you know, you need to have good credit there, but there's other safeties built into the system besides the government just deeming it by some arbitrary number. Is that a fair way to put it?
0: Yeah, that's exactly how, um, that's exactly how I see it. The government's picking winners and losers. And in this case, they're picking the wealthy and they're not picking the middle and lower class. And I mean, look, everybody can get a tax, uh, can have a, a capital gain tax loss. They could take $3,000 investment loss per year against their, um, Against their adjusted gross income and reduce their taxes, but actually, real estate provides more tax breaks. So, remember, I mentioned I was on some uh, a, a hotel deal in Dallas. Well, uh, because of depreciation, we got to write off more in our taxes last year. Why? Because we were involved in real estate. Can can other people who weren't in that deal again deduct from their taxes? Likely not. Um, so, there's these these. It, it provides. Um, you know, an unfair advantage to the wealthy. There's less competition for funds. The wealthy can keep competing for these deals and get bigger and bigger, but the everyday person cannot. Another thing is like I mentioned CrowdStreet because it's one of the real estate um, platforms for accredited investors. The minimum amount of money to invest is about $25,000 typically in a deal. So while that might be a lot to invest for someone in in any given year, you can also make a lot of these investments through an IRA or a Roth IRA. So for example, if you have a Roth IRA and someone who's, let's just say, been uh, contributing, let's say $5,000 to their IRA in any specific year for 10 years, they're going to have $50,000 in their IRA. They can go ahead, if they meet the accredited investor definition, invest in in these in these uh, deals. So you don't actually have to have private money to do this. You could actually use your retirement money and put it towards these, you know, these, potentially high returning deals or above average return deals. And if you're in a Roth IRA, you don't pay taxes on what you earn. The wealthy have been doing this for a long period of time. Um, But unfortunately, it's not available to the middle and lower class.
1: Yeah. Danielle Zanzelari joining us. Let's have let's let's do some grown folk talk here real quick, though. Why that is. Why is it okay for your IRA and those folks to do these investments on your behalf and not okay for you to do it individually? There's a massive industry of financial advisors. Look, I I want everybody to eat and feed their family. I'm not disputing their industry here, but those folks have lobbyists and the banks like working through them. This pay for your, you know, whoever's managing your IRA to do it or a financial manager to do it. But you can't do it, even though in some cases it could be the same thing because you can't call your financial advisor up and dovetail your IRA, depending on what time you have. That's a big part of this, because then you get lobbying involved. And look, there's two ways to fix this. It's going to be a regulatory fix or a legislative fix. And when you've got a lobby an arm like the financial service industries, that's going to make the legislative fix infinitely harder to do.
0: I completely agree. I mean, that's kind of a broader question, how lobbying really influences politics here. And I absolutely. Well, that's
1: everybody, that, not just finances. But yeah, just that's exactly what I'm trying to
0: say. There. You know, that kind of brings up your earlier, your first argument was Main Street versus Wall Street. I think a lot of times people paint um, the financial industry as always money hungry and, and not caring about investors. And I actually really don't think that's true. Uh, I mean, while I'm faculty now and do a lot of work in financial regulation and, and on banking, I also worked at both the, the central bank and a private bank. And there's plenty of people that want to do the right thing and genuinely care about people and having a sound financial system. Not everybody's, you know, uh, you know, out for themselves. But I think that you do sometimes have to blend Main Street with Wall Street, so to speak. And this rule keeps them separated. Again, you want Main Street to be able to, uh, you know, grow and and advance in classes. And one of the things that I mentioned that um, this piece actually came out right on election day. And I made, you need to mention that, Hey, if Republicans gain control of Congress or at least one of the houses, this might advance. And this is great for investors. Right. But what's interesting is that Democrats really have not taken up this argument. And I find that interesting because president Biden's all about, you know, inclusive inclusivity He wants to reduce income inequality. And this is like one of the easy ways to do this. Allow people to invest in the things the rich are investing in. Stop putting these gatekeeping rules on them. The SEC says, hey, we don't want people who are unsophisticated financially to do this. But really, it's the SEC who's unsophisticated.
1: Danielle Zanzalari, one last way to put a bow on this, because look, economics is always tough to talk about because, you know, it's numbers and data points and it's a lot of, you know, big terminology. Part of the investment thing, let's just put this on a real level for a second. You know, if you got somebody that makes 40 or $50,000 a year to the SEC, a couple hundred dollars or a thousand dollar return on an investment that barely gets noticed by the bureaucracy, but to a real life family. You know, a couple hundred dollars, thousand dollars, that's an extra vacation. That's a lifestyle change. That's a big ticket appliance. You know, you can pick anything you want. That's meaningful money to people if they could be able to invest at a low level. And yeah, the, you know, the upper ups would all be like, oh, that's not that much money. A couple hundred dollars is a lot of money to people, especially in an economy. We've got the data now where very few people have $500 on hand cash for an emergency. This seems like one of those areas where if you could open up the floodgates for some small-time investments, it would actually have a meaningful impact to a wide swath of people, like you just talked about, equality. Look, everybody could use a couple hundred extra dollars. This seems like one way to maybe let people do it, even if there's a little bit of risk attached, at least they'd have the option of doing it.
0: Right, I'm all about options. I, I believe in individual choice for these things. I mean, the the individual investor can be involved in real estate, not just you know buying and holding a property, which is not passive. And uh, I'll scream that in the mountain. You know, owning your own rental business is not a passive way of income; it's a business. But there are ways to have a passive stream of income in real estate. You can you can own a share of a REIT, which is a mutual fund essentially, that. Uh, basically buys real estate properties. I'm not giving it the full definition, but that's essentially what it is. So you, you have exposure, it trades in like the stock market. So you could easily, um, you know, access this with 50 or hundred dollars a share, but, this particular types of investing in startup companies and real estate syndicates, it allows just diversification of what you're investing in, right? If you're investing in the stock market this year, you've been down 20, 10% at different points this year. This allows a little bit of diversity to kind of help those returns. And like you said, Andrew, um, it doesn't matter if it's a $100 gain, $1,000 gain, it's a gain. It's a gain towards retirement. It's a gain towards your lifestyle. Um, and it matters. And it matters for people in the, the lower class, the middle class, and also the rich. And it's just it's just time that the SEC allows people to make their own choices. They're allowing them to make it in crypto, which is so much riskier, so much more new than in the real estate syndicate business. It's just um, it's archaic, as you mentioned earlier.
1: Yeah, this is going to be a tough sell to get into the policy realm because a lot of people don't think about it this well. But I really wonder when you have, because this FTX thing is going to be ugly for a while. I wonder if there's going to be an opening to talk about, you know, hey, the stock market is a lot more stable. We should take more controls off. You could funnel people that way. Give folks one or two things when they're having this conversation online or with their friends or if they're talking to a politician in a town hall. Give folks one or two ways to talk about it like, hey, this FTX thing's a mess. This is why we need to clean up traditional investing and let more people do that. Give folks a way or two to maybe discuss and open up that discussion.
0: I, you, Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Everything you're saying, I just I can't agree more and more with, you know, if people are looking for outside returns. Well, crypto could provide it, but it could also provide outside down, uh, uh, outside downturns for your portfolio. But a real estate syndicate, while it might provide a little bit higher returns and, and it could fall, uh, it's much more stable and sound. Uh, than a brand new company. But I mean, the the thing with what's happening with FTX is it's really sad for investors because they got actually frauded out of their money. Um, And it's exposed a whole lot of issues, how some of these various smart tech guys can um, kind of go around accounting practices and no one even notices, not even auditors, not Uh, of the company, but it's fraud. And I think it's going to actually shed a bad light because people are going to be looking for more regulation. Whenever there's a big downturn and loss of money, a lot of people cry that they need more protection. And that's the opposite of what I'd like to see the SEC do with the accredited investor rule.
1: Danielle Zanzalari, we're going to have you back on more often because you're really good at this. (laughs) <laughs> um, until we do, though, uh, we're going to link to this whole piece. Hey, th- this is one of those, too. There's a lot of link stuff inside the piece. You're going to want to link through all the links as well. Really get in, do a little homework on this, because this is something you need to, you know, like any good investment, make sure you're educating yourself. Read the whole thing for yourself. Make your own decision. It's in real clear markets. Let folks know where they can keep up with you and what you have going on until we get you back on tell again, my friend.
0: So probably the easiest place to get in touch with me is on Twitter, d DZanzelary. It's just my first initial and then my last name. Uh, happy to DM back and forth with you and, and discuss anything financial policy, especially on the accredited investor rule. It's something I'm very passionate about, something I didn't know about until I was in a position uh, to want to invest in real estate. And I didn't qualify. And then I tried to do everything to qualify because I wanted those extra opportunities that I was not afforded before. So it's something I'm passionate about to get everybody involved in as someone that didn't grow up in a wealthy household at all. I believe that, that, you know, financial education is really the key.
1: Yep, And we will continue to talk about these issues. Hopefully get you back real soon on it. Danielle Zanzaleri always enjoy talking to you. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Have a nice day.
1: Yes, ma'am. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. Okay, new face to the program. Always enjoy doing this, but a very old issue. Matter of fact, as it goes in the history of mankind, this might be one of the oldest issues we have, finding enough water for everybody. Uh, we're very excited. Another Young Voices contributor. He's a writer out of this great state of Utah. Beautiful place. If you have never been, highly recommend you go. He works as communication outreach coordinator at the Utah Water Research Laboratory, and that's what we're going to focus on. Michael Safeston, how are you, sir? Thank you so much for joining us in the time.
2: Thank you, Andrew, for having me. It's wonderful to be here.
1: This is everybody talks about East Coast media bias. This is something that really does have an East Coast West Coast media bias to it. There's an absolute crisis going on with water in the West, and the Eastern media just doesn't cover it. I I lived in Vegas for a couple of years. I've lived all over the country. When I lived in Vegas, though, it was very apparent. We all have seen the pictures of Lake Mead, and God, that was 12 years ago. It's half of what it was then. Just broad brush for a second. Why do you think this doesn't get covered wider nationally? Because this. I don't think crisis is even fair now. I think it's beyond crisis what's going on with water out in the Western states.
2: Well, I think you, you mentioned the Eastern media bias, and I think that's that's probably some of it. Um, if you come out here to Utah, it is covered pretty extensively. Uh, I think another reason is that it's, it is abstract. Uh, even for people who live here, it can be abstract. Now, I, I don't live uh, particularly close to the Great Salt Lake. I see it at most once a month. And uh, I don't see the the low rivers, uh, though I actually work right next to a river. It's it's hard to to really see the crisis because when I go to my kitchen, I turn on the tap and water comes out, and that's all I need water for. So it it can be abstract, and and that I think has contributed to it not being covered. Um, But that's changing. It's becoming less abstract. You see those images, and they're pretty they're pretty harrowing. Uh, It's it's unquestionable, and and Uh, It largely has to do with, with, in fact, almost entirely has to do with the drought that we're in. And it's been going on for 20 years. And right now, um, the last year or so, it's worse than it's ever been.
1: Yeah, Micah Safeson joining us. Let's do some nomenclature real quick, though, because people know Great Salt Lake. Well, they know the city. They know the ball team. They know probably a movie or two with it. You just mentioned it. Define what it actually is, because people that haven't been there, you know, if you fly into Salt Lake City, you see it. And it kind of changes your perspective on a little bit. And then the first thing they're going to go to is like, well, it's the Great Salt Lake. So who cares if the water goes down or not? Talk about what this really is locally there in Utah, because it is endemic of the larger problem, but it is a unique ecosystem kind of worldwide in a lot of ways.
2: Yeah. So the Great Salt Lake is unique in that it is a terminal lake. That means that there's no water that flows out of it. And that is uh, so. So all the water that leaves the Great Salt Lake leaves through evaporation. And what that means is that anything that flows into it, uh, along with the water, that is like salt, but also pollutants, stay in the lake. They're there forever. And so, when the water level goes down because of evaporation, those pollutants get left behind. And and so, what we're seeing is that we have these exposed lake beds, these very large exposed lake beds. As the water is re- is is receding, these these poisonous, uh, mostly metals, are are in this in the dust that forms as and then the wind uh, blows that dust up into the air and it's toxic it's these are toxic chemicals in the air that uh that then can are released into large population centers Uh, uh, most of the population of utah lives within a short distance of the great salt lake and that it's a huge threat Um, we, we have terminal lakes all over the world the Great Salt Lake is unique in that it is a terminal lake right next to a huge population center. There's maybe only one other lake like that in the world, and um, it's it's a crisis and and it needs to it needs water in it. That's really the only way that you can reliably cover up those those toxic chemicals is by getting water into the lake.
1: Yeah, My Micah stuff Here's the thing. And you wrote about it in the Salt Lake Tribune. You were actually answering another op-ed that came before you. We'll link to both. Everybody read the whole thing. Decide for yourself. That's the issue, though, is, okay, we need more water because we don't have enough water. How do we get more water? Or more to the point, who's in charge of getting more water in there? Now, obviously, that's beyond the average citizen. So there's going to be a government involvement here. But there's the crux of it. This is a long-running thing, especially in the American West, as far back as you want to go to the settlers, really. Who controls the water rights? We have states that still suit. We had a Supreme Court case not two cycles ago over water rights. This has been going on forever. Who owns the water? Who controls the water? Is it a state problem? Is it a landowner problem? This is really, really old core rights kind of stuff, isn't it?
2: It is. It is. And and what's interesting is that uh, the, the American West has adopted, uh, over time, new laws, new uh, legal doctrines that are unique to the East because our water needs, our, our water uh, situation is different here out east. Um, so back east, you, you'll often see what what would be called riparian rights. And, and that is that whoever lives next to the water gets the water. And, and that actually ends up working just fine because there's plenty of water. And if you don't live next to water, Someone will, will gladly share it with you, sell it to you at a low cost, no big deal. But out here in the West, there's far less water and that riparian rights, that, that doesn't work. And so we have, have a different system of rights that's basically first come, first serve. And, and that ends up being very complex. And, and it's also kind of a, a use it or lose it. So if, you, if you're not using the rights you have, you lose that water. And that's actually a very important concept lately because if you wanted to conserve the water that you had rights to, you couldn't because it was use it or lose it. So you were actually incentivized to waste. That's changing. Uh, here in Utah, that, that changed just this year. It took far too long, but it has changed. And, and in other states, you're seeing it as well. Colorado did it a long time ago. And, uh, and that's good. We're, we're incentivizing conservation.
1: Yeah, let's get to the terminology here a little bit, because what we're talking about is public trust and conservation. So just define both of them as it applies. You just mentioned the Colorado River. That's one of the real crisis water points for the entire West, really, when you look at the drainage basin for the Colorado River. Talk about the public trust, define that, and conservation as we mean it when it comes to water, because water conservation is a little bit different, a little more specific than when we're talking about conservation overall, when we're talking about, you know, forests or hunting rights and things like that.
2: Right. So public trust doctrine is is this legal idea, this legal theory, that um, exists primarily in this kind of natural resources world. And it's the idea that uh, that a, a natural resource like public land uh, or or water, belongs to the public. And therefore government is justified in regulating it. And so uh, if you have if you have uh, some property, that has um, an endangered uh, endangered species uh, endangered uh, endangered species living on it. The government is justified in basically seizing it or at least regulating it a great deal. Um, in fact, it usually isn't seizing it but regulating it so that uh, you can't build on build on that land. And that's you know that's eminent domain and. Uh, And when it's applied to water it's basically saying that there is a a uh, shortage of water we we are in a drought if you own a water right you need to give up all or a portion of that right and that is very significant for people who whose income their their jobs depend on a lot of water namely farmers ranchers and so it's it's kind of this theory that that has been around a long time. Um, applying it to the Great Salt Lake is complicated because there's a lot of water users that have rights to Great Salt Lake water, and you would have you would have to apply it to every single one. And so, no one actually really thinks that that it can be applied in the courts, but they are. It has been suggested, and it's suggested in the in the Great Salt Lake, uh, sorry, the Salt Lake Tribune editorial that I'm responding to, that it's basically applied legislatively. And I think that's a problem. Um, and the, the reason is because it doesn't incentivize conservation. To get to the second part of your, your question, um, defining conservation, I mean, it, it's, it, conservation comes best when it is incentivized, when, when it is aligned with your own personal interest. And my point in the, in the article is that if we really want to conserve water, we need to incentivize those who hold those water rights. Rather than just punishing them, we need to incentivize them to conserve. And and I would suggest that here in Utah, that's already beginning to happen.
1: Ah... Micah Steffson joining us. It's not just the Salt Lake. We just mentioned the Colorado River. You also was riding over in Town Hall. The federal government gets involved. This gets even more complicated. And then the state's issues in this. The Colorado River Basin is ginormous. It's multiple states. The lower uses way more water than the upper, but all the water's in the upper. There's a lot of layers here. And you talk about when the federal government got involved to try to get everybody on the same page here, this is actually one of those situations where, where you would think, well, you got multiple States fighting. This is where the federal government needs to step in. Cause that's kind of how the system's designed. But in this particular case, they kind of made it worse and not better. Now they, they did a few things right, but overall central planning, a water system is turning out to be a quagmire in and of itself. And that's before you even get to the uh, the drought that is just showing no relent.
2: Yeah, that's, that's right. You, you put it perfectly central planning of of water conservation, water management um, is, is a mistake because what what it does is it doesn't it, it kind of creates this 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 disconnect between the decision makers and the ones who actually carry out the conservation. And so when the federal government I, I, more specifically the Bureau of Reclamation told the the seven Colorado river basin states that they had to create this plan to conserve water. They didn't that what that then did is it is it then allowed each individual state to think of itself, think think of only of itself. It no longer had to consider the basin as a whole. It just said it it basically was giving permission for each state to say, I just need to get as much of this water for myself or for our state as I possibly can. Um, no longer had any incentive to actually work with the surrounding parties. If instead the federal government had just stayed out of it, individual states would have quickly seen how that intransigence would have actually made the problem worse. You know, the, the state of Utah would have, for example, which which actually is is one of the um, probably uses less Colorado River water than than most states in the basin. Um, would have said it's not in my best interest to try and hoard this water because then nothing is going to be agreed to instead what it would have been incentivized along with with the six other states it would have been incentivized to work with those states and say okay Arizona and California are going to need more of this water than than Utah Wyoming and Colorado uh, and and it would have inc- incentivized cooperation whereas now with with one big overarching authority that claims to to be be capable of solving the problem for everyone, there's no longer an incentive to work together. And we're seeing that. And and I'm pretty doubtful that a big federal bureaucracy, um, with with little insight of what's going happening on the ground is actually going to be able to solve this problem.
1: Yeah, Micah Saison joining us. This brings us right back to where we started, whether it's the Salt Lake or the Colorado River, states rights, local rights, water rights, landowner rights, federal government. This is always going to be the puzzle involved here. You talk about it, you know, we need to get the authority back to the local folks. How's that going to get done? Is it legislative? We've <laughs> These have been in the courts forever. They're in the courts right now. We have suits. All, states always suing each other over water rights. Is it going to be the courts? Is it going to be legislative? What's the path forward here? Because this crisis is getting worse, whether we like it or not. The water and the drought out west is getting worse, whether we like it or not. This is going to hit a crisis point before it hits an inflection point where people solve it, I think. I don't know if you agree with me. So what's the path forward? Legislative, courts, what do you think?
2: Uh, I think the courts is, there's some hope there. Um, I a little bit of hope there. I'm less optimistic about Congress being willing and able to to uh, relegate some of these this responsibilities, relegate some of the authority back to local actors, states. On the, I, th- I think states are where I have the most hope. State legislatures, uh, states, particularly my home state of Utah, has done a great deal. Um, Utah's is, are especially focused on the Great Salt Lake because it's a re- very pressing issue. Uh, but when you look at the Colorado River, um, the Colorado River Basin states, they also have, have a, a lot more incentive and appetite to, to work to solve this problem.
1: Yeah. One last question for you. You left it and we're going to have both these pieces in the notes. Make sure you read them both. We're also going to link to the editorial in Salt Lake Tribune that he's responding to. In fairness, you want to read that so you got the context. You brought up a great point earlier, and I want to round it off with this because this is how you ended your Salt Lake Tribune piece, is people choosing between their personal interests and conservation. This has always been the fight was, look, as long as the water's coming out of my tap, what do I care? But then they also want their states to be beautiful. And most people, when you ask them, they want, you know, natural conservation in some form or fashion. How do we rhetorically, how do we on our social media, us, just the normal folks, not the policy wonks? How do we talk about this a little better so that we're moving the ball forward in our conversations, not just, you know, using buzzwords in something that, frankly, is policy heavy and you can get in the weeds really quick and people can lose interest, but it's still very important. How do we talk about this better?
2: Well, I think the, the first thing to understand is that the problem is going to have to be solved by the people who, who have the rights to the most water in most of the the Colorado Basin states, that's agriculture. That is where the problem is going to be solved. And so we need to be working with agriculture, not against it. and and I, I understand that for many it they, they drive through Nevada, particularly Utah, Arizona, and Southern California, um, Nevada to a lesser extent, they drive through these states and they sit they think, how on earth? Can we justify having a farm here? This is a desert, and it is a desert. And in many areas, uh, farms are are just not going to work. And and it's true there probably are too many farms, too many, too too many, too much agriculture in the West. But to to change that, we need to be working with the current paradigm. We're working with agriculture now, and and finding ways. To incentivize conservation, um, and there's a lot of that being done with with the leasing of private water rights. Um, states are spending st- Utah is spending an enormous amount of money to lease private water rights that then return to the Great Salt Lake, and that is a way that farmers can earn it can can make money. They can make a profit while still conserving water. Um, we can also incentivize. Uh, agricultural optimization. So so using less water to grow more crops. That that is, there's a lot of space there. And and so when we just talk about this, understand that it's not going to be solved by just getting rid of agriculture in one fell swoop because that's not possible. That's not realistic. And so we need to find ways to to make to, to change agriculture in West, not simply eliminate it. Um, that's probably the biggest thing I see talking to people about this issue um, is is they they just kind of are are very quick to demonize agriculture, and I understand, but it's not going to be, simply be solved by just eliminating it um, in one fell swoop. It's it's, it's not possible.
1: Yeah. One fell swoop never works for anything, especially something as complicated as this, especially something that's as old a debate as mankind has, because we've always had to go looking for water since the first two guys fought over water. This is just kind of how it is. It's a new spin on it. Uh, Micah Safestan, really appreciate the time today. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with what you got going on until we get you back on Hurtel again, because we're going to be talking about this more because this isn't ever going to go away, I don't think.
2: Sure. Yeah, uh, you just follow me on Twitter. It's um, just at Micah R Safestin, Uh That's S A F S T E N. Micah R SafeSton on Twitter, and um, I'm I. You can find me there. So I post uh, what, what I, write. I write. I typically write about water in the West and other natural resources issues and other things that are on my mind.
1: Yep. He's another one of our great Young Voices contributor. His Twitter handle is on the lower third graphic. If you're watching on the YouTube or on the Facebook feed with our big talker partner, Micah, uh really appreciate the insight on this tough issue, but it's really important. Appreciate you explaining it so well that even I could understand it. Thank you, sir. Well done. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it, sir.
2: And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.
1: Let's end on a good note. Over the Thanksgiving holiday, let's go down to the Gulf Shore. Uh, Fort Myers, Florida, W.I.N.K. TV, a family displaced by Hurricane Ian on the edge of homelessness, got a gift on Thanksgiving Day from an anonymous donor to help them push through tough times. The Sosa family had a lot to be thankful for on Thanksgiving after a number of W.I.N.K. news viewers reached out wanting to help the family of five. They were supposed to be out of the hotel they were staying in on Monday. But that's changed because thanks to W.I.N.K. news viewers, they're staying through Christmas. When the W.I.N.K. news told Naomi that they would be staying for another month, her face lit up with gratitude. I'm happy that we don't have to be in the streets and that I can stay with my family and that we don't have to be homeless. That was the reality of what the Sosa family was looking at before. There was no hope at all, just like this week is ending in the hotel. It's over and we have to run where we're going and what are we going to do? Giovanni said Giovanni's employer then put them up for the two weeks. But that was set to end on Monday. I was driving when you called me and he had me pull over to tell the side of the road. And I had to pull over to the side because I tell my wife I can't drive like this. I'm too emotional and too much excitement. Excitement over answered prayers for someone like the Sosa family will likely never even meet. I said, I got a good feeling Tomorrow's going to be a good day. And here's a good day. Even though we can't see her, tell her that she's an angel, the angel that God sent us. Giovanni said the angel asked to remain anonymous other than. They did say it was a woman who wanted to help out and had been moved by the story. Knowing that there's somebody out there that is like he said, our angel coming to help us and actually feel our pain is like they know what we're going through. And it's truly a blessing. Heather said blessings were sent to the Sosa family when they needed them the most quote. It's the best thing we can ask for today. We might not have the big fancy dinner, but we have this news that we will have more time here. The couple taking care of the Sosa's told WINK news. It's their Christmas gift to themselves to be able to help others in need. Good little story there. Hey, you can help folks out. It doesn't have to be something fancy like this. I tell you all the time. Something I try to do when I'm able to do. If you're just out eating at a restaurant or something, pick up the check for another table. Just tell the waitress bring it to you. Keep it on low key. They don't have to know about. It. Do little things like that. Uh, pay for the person's groceries in front of you in line once in a while. That's good. See, I've even had that come back to me where somebody behind me did it for me. Little things like this are good. It's good. Everybody wants to donate at Christmas. When you can do it face-to-face to somebody or for somebody in your immediate community or somebody that you see is having a moment right in that thing, I always find that a lot more rewarding than just giving to a large organization. Nothing wrong with that. Putting a personal face on will make you feel good, make that person feel good. Gives a little more humanity to everything that all of us are doing. As we go through the holiday season, let's keep that in mind. We can talk about all the other stuff. Let's take care of each other a little bit better. That'll do it for tell for today good to be back got a lot going on in the next few weeks we'll keep you up to speed on all that In the meantime we're going to keep doing what we always do turn down the noise of the news cycle try to keep things uh to the minimum of caterwalling and just focus on the things that are important because there's a lot of stuff going on year is ending fast and we're going to have to hit 2023 running folks so wherever you are across street or around the world thank you so much for watching and or listening and we hope you're well we hope you're well fed we'll talk to you again real soon with more hurt tell All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. So much